we're going to go to a scripture text here in Ezekiel chapter 36. And let me preface today's message with this. Uh, there is only one way to heaven. There is not any other way than Jesus. There is not a Jewish way in the Old Testament and a Christian way in the New Testament and a Muslim way for those that go that way. It is just Jesus. If you miss Jesus, you miss heaven. Jesus is the Creator who stepped into His creation to give His life and shed His blood to atone for the sins of all. Uh, going all the way back to uh, uh, Adam and Eve, when, when Adam and Eve had sinned and they had attempted to cover their nakedness with their own work, with the labors of their own hands by making aprons of leaves. And God said, that's not good enough. And God preached the first salvation message in Genesis 3.15 and promised the coming Messiah, the promised Redeemer, that one day the seed of the woman would in fact crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And God then took an innocent substitutionary sacrifice. I believe it was probably a lamb whose blood was shed, the life was given, and they were covered with these garments that God had made for them. That was a picture. Throughout the Old Testament, if that was done in faith, Paul tells us very clearly that the blood of bulls and goats do not take away the sins of a man. But those were done in obedience, in faith, looking forward to that sacrifice the shed blood of the Lamb of God, which would take away the sins of the world. Now, we are looking back at that finished work, but it's either Jesus or nothing. There's not a Jewish way, a Christian way. There is just Jesus. He is the only way. He is the Messiah. He is the Creator. He came the first time as the sacrifice. He's coming again as King of Kings. Now, our scripture text this morning will be taken from Ezekiel. And I love Ezekiel. I could pull any chapter, any, any of the books of prophets, because they all say the same thing. But Ezekiel is outstanding because Ezekiel is more chronological than any of the other Old Testament prophets. And we go through a passage in the mid-20s, chapter 25, 26, where Ezekiel specifically calls out and says, You enemies of Israel, I am going to be done with. Ammon, you are finished. Moab, you are finished. Edom, you are finished. Phoenicia, you are finished. Philistia, Goliath and the Philistines, you are finished. God said 2,500 years ago, you will cease to exist as a people. And God said to Israel, I am going to wail the daylights out of you for your disobedience. Nevertheless, I am going to keep the literal promises that I have made to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And although you're going to be out of the land for a long, long, long time, the last days I'm going to bring you back. Initially in unbelief. Folks, when you look at Israel today and you say they're a godless people, well, that's exactly what I would expect when we read the Valley of Dry Bones. And after the seven years of tribulation at Armageddon, when Zechariah 14 is fulfilled, Jesus comes as King of Kings. At that point, that remnant, that remaining, right now in our age, if a Jew doesn't call upon Jesus, not going to heaven. In our age, if a Gentile doesn't call upon Jesus, not going to heaven. But there will be a remnant of Jews around Jerusalem that literally see His return. 
and they will cry out to Him at this point, which is what Paul was talking about in Romans 11 and other passages. But read with me here. Chapter 37, verse 12, Therefore Jeremiah prophesy and say unto them, excuse me, not Jeremiah, but Ezekiel. And understand, Ezekiel had seen this vision, a, a valley full of bones. Imagine where a battle had taken place several hundred years ago. And all that's left was the carnage. Just dead, decayed bodies, the flesh all gone, just bones littering this valley. God said, Ezekiel, what do you see? Well, valley of dry bones. Well, tell me, what is it, Ezekiel? Lord, you know what it is. Okay, let me tell you, Ezekiel, this body is my people Israel. I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you, and you shall live, and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall you know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it. I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his fellows. In other words, the northern ten states, the northern kingdom. And I will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, the southern two states, and make them one scepter again, and they shall be one in my hand. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the Gentile nations, whither they be scattered. And will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king to them all. And they shall no more be the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Neither shall they be divided. They will be my people and I will be their God. And just as was promised in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, as was promised to David, as Gabriel told Mary when he announced to her she was going to uh, have a child even though she was a virgin, the seed of David will sit on the throne of David. And they shall have one shepherd, that being King Jesus. And they shall walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell there, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. And this, Jeremiah said, there is going to be a deliverance that blows away when I brought you out of bondage in Egypt. There is going to be a deliverance that makes you forget all about the Red Sea crossing. And it's this one. And the Gentiles shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel, and my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe this is literally going to happen. I believe we are literally seeing it happen now. And I'll talk about more of that in a minute. But this morning, we're going to look at who owns the land, the political history of the land of Israel. Now, recognize this too, ladies and gentlemen. There are three groups of people that hate the existence of Israel. And this is somewhat shocking, but let me just tell you what it is. First of all, it's the Muslims. The Muslim presence, as you'll see in the message this morning, they detest the Zionist presence in the Middle East. Second, there's actually a group of ultra-Orthodox Jews that believe that political Israel is getting ahead of the Messiah. They look at Zechariah 7 and talk about how the Messiah will rebuild the temple. And they say, wait a second, you better put the brakes on because it's the Messiah that rebuilds the temple. And actually, I agree with them. There will be a temple that is built that is occupied by the Antichrist. But then there will be a millennial temple that is built by the Messiah. But there's also a third group coming out of Catholicism. 
You know, after the, the church of the early centuries that was so fiercely persecuted for the first couple of hundred years, then there was the Holy Roman Catholic Church. And rather than being persecuted, the church was on top. The church basically ruled the world. Now, I would say many of it, much of it was a lost church. It was a godless church. Nevertheless, the organization ruled the world. And they had to redefine what was going on in the Old Testament. There was no literal Israel for some 1,800 years. There was no actual Israel you could point to. So what do you do with all those promises that God made, just like the ones that I read just a moment ago? Well, it used to be that those were interpreted literally, and I interpret them literally. But officially, the Catholic Church said, well, those are allegor. It's all, that's, that's spiritualized that. Those really aren't literal. That's not really the literal land of Israel. That's not really literal. It's really the church has now received all of those blessed promises. Folks, the church is the church, and Israel is Israel. And the bride of Christ will rule and reign with King Jesus during the literal millennial reign, the kingdom of heaven on earth, which is the nation of Israel. So there are three groups that detest the existence of Israel. One, surprisingly enough, are many Protestant denominations. Because the idea of a literal Israel flies in the face of their eschatology. So with that background, let me get into the political history. This picture was a very famous photograph. Perhaps some of you may remember it. This picture was taken the eve of Rosh Hashanah in 20, uh, 2000. And the caption of this picture was published in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and through Associated Press around the world. And of course, we know what the problem is. Here you see this poor, innocent, unarmed Palestinian being beaten up by this brutal Israeli soldier carrying a weapons, as is always the case. Once again, you've got the oppressors and the oppressed. Interesting thing, though, is when this was published in America, the man's father, Dr. Aaron Grossman, who was an American Jew from Chicago, saw this picture and wrote a letter to the editor of the New York Times. And to their credit, they did publish the letter and offered a, a back page uh, apology and correction. But it says this, regarding your picture on page A5 of the Israeli soldier and the Palestinian on the Temple Mount, that Palestinian is actually my son, Tuvia Grossman a Jewish student from Chicago. He and two of his friends were pulled from their taxi cab while traveling in Jerusalem by a mob of Palestinian Arabs and were severely beaten and stabbed. That picture could not have been taken on the Temple Mount because there are no gas stations on the Temple Mount, especially gas stations with Hebrew lettering on them on the Temple Mount, like the one clearly seen behind the Israeli soldier. And now, ladies and gentlemen, you know, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. But why does this kind of mistake happen so often? And by the way, how many of you heard that there was an explosive device detonated in New York City yesterday in a Jewish district by Arabs? Have you heard that on the news? Of course not. As a matter of fact, if you watch anything other than Fox, you are not aware that there is a rash of attacks and acts of anti-Semitism across the country right now. It's open game on Jewish Americans by Arab Americans, yet you don't hear anything about it. And rest assured, if it, the roles were reversed, 
If it was Christians persecuting Muslims, it would be all over MSNBC and CNN. If it was Jews persecuting Muslims, it would be all over uh, MSNBC and CNN. But in this case, you don't hear anything about it. We're going to cover just a couple of things briefly this morning. We're going to tackle some of these questions that we see permeating the news. One, what about the so-called occupied territory? Number two, where exactly is the nation? of Palestine. Number three, what about a possible proposed two-state solution? And then we're going to look at the Palestinian refugees. First of all, we want to talk about the occupied territory. We look back historically and we know that God delivered Israel after 400 years in bondage in captivity in Egypt. He brought them out miraculously with a mighty hand, brought them through the Red Sea, and after 40 years of wandering in unbelief in the wilderness, Joshua brought them into the promised land and placed them right where God said he would. They were to be a lighthouse to the Gentile nations, drawing the Gentiles to the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. However, you all know the story. Israel much of the time went right off into disobedience. As a matter of fact, throughout the 400-year history that's recorded in the book of Judges, we see a continuous or perpetual cycle of disobedience, God's judgment, repentance, God's restoration to be followed by disobedience and God's judgment time and again. Finally, at the end of that period of time, as Samuel was about to uh, go to meet the Lord, the Jews asked for a king. First they had Saul for 40 years who ruled after his own heart. Then they had David for 40 years who was a man after God's own heart. And then Solomon who midway through his reign apostatized because he had married so many Gentile pagan wives and allowed idolatry into the kingdom. After Solomon God divided the kingdom with 10 tribes or states geographically to the north and two tribes or states geographically to the south called Israel and Judah. Those are the two kingdoms that we talked about just a moment ago in Ezekiel. Now, the northern kingdom immediately went off into idolatry. And God sent prophets to judge them and to try to call them back. God sent pestilence. God sent famine. Everything trying to get their attention. But it was unsuccessful. And finally, after about 225 years, the northern kingdom was captured by the Assyrians. And they became occupied territory. They were ruled by Assyria. Of course, you remember, the Assyrians came down and tried to take Jerusalem. But God intervened and miraculously rescued Hezekiah. And the southern kingdom existed for about another 125 years until they, through disobedience, were conquered by the Babylonians. And all of Israel, in fact, became occupied territory. We know that Babylon fell to Media Persia, and Medo Persia ruled over Israel as it was occupied territory. We know that Medo Persia fell to Alexander the Great and Greece, and Israel was still occupied territory. We know that Greece ultimately gave way to Rome, and the Roman Empire ruled the world, and Israel was still occupied territory. But it was named provincially Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. These were all districts or provinces under the rule of the Roman Empire. We know historically, just as Jesus had prophesied would happen, after his crucifixion, some 37, 38 years later, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans and the temple was burned to the ground. But that wasn't the only time that happened. Those Jews are a troublemaking lot. 
and they were continuing to stir up and trying to throw off the boot of Roman oppression. And in 135, they thought they had the Messiah. It's amazing, they missed the real Messiah when He came, just as the Bible said they would, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, countless other passages that didn't catch God by surprise. But in 135, they had a man named Shimon Bar Kokhba, Simon the Star, thinking that he was the Messiah. You know, there was a star in Jacob, Numbers 24, 17 was. So Simon Bar Kokhba led in this revolt, which ultimately was crushed in 135 A.D. It was crushed so thoroughly that the city of Jerusalem was again destroyed, and it was plowed under and salted, and they built a temple to Jupiter, and renamed the city uh, uh, Alias Capitolina, and renamed this area Syria, Palestina, or for the Philistines, Syria, Philistia. They removed from the Roman maps Judea, Samaria, and the Galilee, and instead and took Jerusalem off the map initially. It's called Alias Capitolina, and it was Syria, Palestina. Now, that is where this term Palestine originates. Now, after the Roman Empire, we know that the Muslim invasion came in 638 and captured the Holy Land. We know that the last great Islamic caliphate was the Ottoman Turkish Empire, which lasted from 1299 until World War I. So over 600 years, the Middle East was largely ruled by the Ottoman Turkish Caliphate. But in World War I, the Ottoman Empire got on the wrong side of the war. You had France and England and America that we call the allies or the good guys, and you had Germany and the Ottoman Turks primarily as what was called the Axis or the bad guys. Well, during World War I, there was a great battle fought down here for control of the Promised Land. And General Allenby, the British general, actually conquered the Ottoman Turk forces in the Megiddo Valley in a great, valley, a great battle. He came to Jerusalem, got off his horse, and walked into the city saying, I come as nothing more than a pilgrim. My Lord will come through these gates one day riding on a horse, but I will walk humbly as a pilgrim. And it was established by the League of Nations that after World War I, this area that was formerly part of the Ottoman Turkish Caliphate for 600 years would be governed by France and Great Britain in these areas or tracts of land that were mandated to them through the League of Nations, which was the predecessor to the United Nations. But the point I want to make here in passing is that if you look on the Ottoman maps from 1600 A.D., this one happens to be in French, this area is called Syria. If you look on this Ottoman map dating back to 1801, this area is not called Palestine, it's called Syria. So even among the Arabs, there was never a land or a nation called Palestine. 
There has never been a Palestine with Jerusalem as its capital. There has never been a Palestinian currency. There has never been a Palestinian uh, constitution. There has never been a country or nation historically ever in existence called Palestine. The last nation that actually occupied this area and had Jerusalem as its capital was Israel, and that dated back to 600 years B.C. Ever since then, this has, in fact, been occupied territory. As a matter of fact, in 1964, the PLO Charter states specifically that they lay no claim to any geographical area. The Palestinian Liberation Organization was nothing more than an entity created to destroy the Zionist presence in the Middle East. Point number two, let's talk about the Palestinian people. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, World War I wound up with the Ottoman Empire and the German Empire on the wrong side of the, of the battle lines. And as the Ottoman Empire was uh, involved in this, as you can see by the map, Great Britain, being an island nation, was actually cut off from supplies. America would continue to send supplies to Great Britain to help with the military effort, including our troops coming and being stationed in Great Britain before going into France and into Europe. But German U-boats patrolled the Atlantic Ocean trying to disrupt and destroy the supply line. There is an important ingredient for high explosives called acetone. And this acetone, which was uh, hard to come by being an island nation, it hampered the war effort in Great Britain. But there was a, a, a Jewish chemist by the name of Heim Wiseman that created a synthetic fermentation process, creating a synthetic acetone. He was a hero to the British war effort. Great Britain sought to reward him in some way. They said, Sir, can we make you a lord? Can we name you a knight? And you can be Sirheim. He said, I don't care about that. And they said, What about money? I don't care about that. He was the first president of the nation of Israel. What he said was, What I would like is a homeland for my people. And in 1917, Great Britain issued their intent in what is called the Balfour Declaration. And this area of land that you see on the map that was going to be under the British mandate after the war was dedicated to the future homeland of the Jewish people. Now let me tell you about this area of real estate. If the world was going to get an enema, God would probably have stuck it in this area of land. This was the armpit of the planet at this point in time. As a matter of fact, Mark Twain, who was a famous author, traveled the world and wrote a book about his experiences called Innocence Abroad. Let's look and see what Mark Twain had to say about the promised land in 1867. He said, of all the lands there are for dismal scenery, I think Palestine, again, that's what Great Britain calls this area. It was the Palestinian mandate. The British had control of it. Where does that name go back to? It goes back to 135 A.D. when uh, Emperor Hadrian took Judea, Samaria, and, and Galilee off the maps and replaced it with Syria, Philistina. Of all the lands there are for dismal scenery, I think Palestine must be the prince. 
It is a hopeless, dreary, heartbroken land. Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. Over it broods the spell of a curse that has withered its fields and fettered its energies. Palestine is desolate and unlovely. And why should it be otherwise? Can the curse of the deity beautify a land? He went on to say, There was hardly a tree or a shrub anywhere. Even the olive and the cactus, who are fast friends of a worthless soil, had almost deserted the country entirely. He went on to say, We reached Mount Tabor safely. We never saw a human being on the whole route. There is not a solitary village throughout its whole extent, not for 30 miles in either direction. One may ride 10 miles hereabouts and not see 10 human beings. These unpeopled deserts, these rusty mounds of of barrenness. The Ottoman Turks did censuses every decade. And the census in 1880 showed that only about 250,000 people lived in the area of land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. And most of those people lived in Jerusalem or Haifa or Jaffa. Why was that? Well, after 1,800 years since the destruction of Rome in 70 A.D., this land had truly become a plagued nothing. It was a malaria-infested swamp or a desert, deserted wilderness where nothing would grow. One in five children died in infancy during this period of time. The median age of death was 37 because this was a malaria-infested, plagued area of land that nobody wanted. After 1,800 years, again, let me emphasize, there was only about 250,000 people in population here. And as a matter of fact, a substantial part of that was in the cities. This was called Carl Bedecker's Travel Guide. He used to be well-known in making, obviously, travel guides if you wanted to travel certain areas of the world. In 1906, he published an edition for Palestine, again, the British name for this area, and Syria, Syria, Palestina. And at that point in time, the population of Jerusalem was about 60,000 people. Of that 60,000, 7,000 were Muslim, 40,000 were Jews, and 13,000 were Christians. So the point I'm trying to make is for some 2,000 years, or 1,800 years actually, this area was not high-priority real estate. Nobody lived there. Nobody wanted to live there. Now, this is one of my favorite pictures. What you see here is 66 Jewish families that bought 12 acres of prime real estate. How many of you would like to buy that property right there? Mm-mm. Can't wait to get out and start plowing and try to plant a crop there. 66 Jewish families bought this 12 acres and planted a Jewish suburb of Jaffa. Now look at this real estate. Does it look like it's high priority? Does it look like it's something that you or anybody else would want? Well, a century later, this is what it looks like. That is modern-day Tel Aviv. Now, folks, we're told that the descendants of the Palestinians who had lived there for millennia are being chased out of their land. That is just historically not true. 
This was not prime real estate. It was sand dunes or malaria-infested swamps. The primary population centers were Jerusalem, Haifa, and Jaffa. And we see even there, there was a heavy population of Jews. But when the Zionist movement began in the late 1800s, and Jews began moving back to the promised land, which, again, nobody wanted. You saw what Mark Twain had to say about it. It was a cursed land. Then the Arab League also began trying to move back and populate that area to compete against and suppress any Zionist presence. But what's interesting is, as I mentioned a moment ago, after 1,800 years, the entire population was only at about 250,000. From 1922 to 1948, the population doubled from 670,000 to 1.2 million. You say, Pastor, what's the point you're trying to make? I'm trying to tell you that this wasn't natural birth rate. This was people moving in in droves. As a matter of fact, if you look at your history, you'll find that the, go- that the Dome of the Rock was built around 680 uh, A.D., But they didn't put gold on the Dome of the Rock until the 1920s. Why was that? In response to the Zionist effort. Jerusalem wasn't even important to Islam. It's not mentioned in the Quran. It wasn't a major city until the Jews started moving back and this became a major political issue. Now, point number three. We've heard about the two-state solution. Why can't they just live side by side? This guy was the original Middle Eastern terrorist. His name was Amin al-Husseini. He'd served in the Ottoman Turkish army during World War I. After World War I, he was the spiritual leader in and around Jerusalem. He actually started creating riots, fires, protests, and things of that nature, and generally became a thorn in the side of the Brits who were trying to govern that area. They tried to make concessions to appease him. By the way, you see pictures down here. Hassani, Hazamina Hussaini with Adolf Hitler working with the Germans during World War II. He was actually an active part in recruiting and the execution of the final solution. Well, back to just post-World War I. After the Jaffa riots and other riots in Jerusalem and other areas, Great Britain unilaterally decided to create two states. They created everything. Remember, this whole thing was supposed to be for the Jewish people. But they divided it 77% and 23% and said, this we will make an Arab land. As a matter of fact, they didn't name it Palestine. They named it Transjordan. And they didn't put a local in charge. As a matter of fact, the son of the king of, of Arabia wound up, was given control of this property. So you had Arab Palestine and Jewish Palestine. This was to appease the Arabs, hopefully, and this was going to be set aside for the Jewish people. Now, notice those borders. Those look familiar. They actually are identical to biblical borders as well. But here's a point that I want to make. In 1922, this was ratified by the League of Nations. It was also ratified by the United States Senate. So the last official political act for the Middle East was that this all belongs to the Jewish people. So we've got two states. 
Again, neither one of them are named uh, 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 Palestine. But that wasn't good enough. As a matter of fact, the rioting continued. There were limits on Jewish immigration into this area, even between 1920 and 1940. Of course, you all know what happened to, Jew, to the Jews in Europe during, the, during World War II. You're aware of the Holocaust. After the Holocaust, after World War II, now it's 1948. The League of Nations had dissolved. The United Nations had been birthed. And the United Nations came up with another two-state solution. They said, we'll divide the land like this with Resolution 181 for the United Nations. And notice, even in this resolution, it doesn't say anything about the nation of Palestine. They're creating two states, one for the Arabs and one for the Jews. Well, the Jews said, great. We're glad to have any place to call our homeland. But let me also point out this in passing. You see all this down here? See where it says Negev? That's all desert. Not exactly prime real estate if you're in the real realty business. See all this? This was going to the Arabs. This is pretty lush, mountainous area. Uh, this is lush, mountainous area. But this was supposed to be for the Jews. Not much of anything. You've got beaches, which are sandy. Of course, Tel Aviv wound up going there just north of Jaffa. You've got the desert down here. By the way, how many of you men have served in the military? Okay, and ladies have served in the military. You've got nine miles from one border to the other there. Is this a very defensible piece of property if you were going to try to defend it from an attack? Not really, but you know what happened? The Jews said, great, we'll take it. The Arab League said not only no, but heck no. The British said, we are tired of this. We just got done with World War II. We have our hands full trying to build our country back. We are pulling our presence out of the Middle East. We're giving this mandate back to the United Nations. And on May the 15th, they were pulling out. And it was going to be a free-for-all. So on May the 14th, 1948, David Ben-Gurion stood in Constitution Hall and read the Declaration of Independence in a matter of 16 minutes. They, um, this is a true story. They had to get it in because they met at 4 o'clock and the Sabbath started at 6. So they had to be done and back home before the Sabbath. But he closed his statement by saying this, placing our trust in the rock of Israel, we affix our signatures to this proclamation. Now, get this. All of this land had been Ottoman Turkish Empire for 600 years. After World War I, Egypt was officially reinstituted as a sovereign country in 1922. Nobody cared. Turkey was officially reconstituted a country in 1923. Nobody cared. Iraq was officially constituted as a country in 1932. Nobody cared. Lebanon became a country in 1943. Nobody cared. Syria became a country in 1943. Nobody cared. But on May the 14th, 1948, Israel declared its independence. President Truman recognized their existence and right to exist almost immediately. And within 24 hours, Israel was attacked by five Arab nations. Now, they had 19,000 men under arms, no tanks, no airplanes, attacked by five fully funded, fully functioning armies. And guess who won? Don't tell me that that couldn't have been without divine intervention. Now, look at what was stated. 
Hajamin al-Husseini, I introduced you to him a moment ago, the original Middle East terrorist, said this, I declare a holy war, a jihad, my Muslim brothers, murder the Jews, murder them all. The Secretary General for the Arab League said, this will be a war of extermination and a momentous massacre which will be spoken of like the Mongolian Crusades, or massacres and the Crusades. Ladies and gentlemen, does that sound like there's any desire for a peaceful two-state solution? No, it sounds to me like they want to wipe out all memory of the Jewish people. As a matter of fact, from 1949, when the armistice was signed, until the Six-Day War in 1967, Jordan had illegally occupied and annexed what is called the West Bank. Egypt had illegally occupied and annexed Gaza. Now remember, I showed you a moment ago. The last official act of 1922, which was ratified by the League of Nations and the United States Senate, gave all of this to Israel. If we have a lawyer in the room or somebody that's trying to determine borders, that's a done deal. The argument is over. The United Nations came up with another partition system, which the Arabs rejected and instead attacked Israel. Now, look right here on the logo for Fatah. Look right here on the logo for Hamas. Does it look like there's any two-state system? What area are they claiming for themselves, and what area are they saying belongs to Israel? All of it is going to themselves. None of it is to Israel. And let me just make this point. The Palestinian Liberation Organization was started in 1964. For three years, Arabs had control of this property and this property. If they wanted to create a nation and call it Palestine for 19 years, they could have done it, and the Jews couldn't have raised a, a, a welt on their fanny because they had control of this property. Where was Yasser Arafat? Where were they coming out saying, hey, you're occupying this land illegally. It belongs to Palestine. Not a peep. Because it's not about the West Bank and Gaza. It's about all of the nation of Israel. By the way, initially the PLO was not very popular. Initially they were framed in the American press as terrorists murdering people and blowing stuff up. But Yasser Arafat was trained by the KGB. How many of you were alive during the Vietnam War? How was it presented in the American media? Was it presented as communists invading a free country and the South Vietnamese trying to fight off the communists? No, it was presented as the People's Liberation Army were trying to throw off the occupiers and the oppressors. And they were calling the American or the Western interests the occupiers and the oppressors and the communists were called the freedom fighters. You go back and you look in your history, you'll see the same roots in Czechoslovakia before it was given away and before Hitler came to power. By the way, if you look at your history, you wait until we get 20 or 30 years down the road and the 1619 Project has been taught in all of our schools for a couple of decades. And you will find out that the same people that are saying black lives matter are also in the same protest saying Palestinian lives matter. And we 
are looked at as the evil occupying oppressors here in North America. Now, this man was part of the uh, PLO executive committee. His name was Zahir Moose. He actually was interviewed by an Amsterdam newspaper in 1977, and he said this, The Palestinian people does not exist. The creation of a Palestinian state is only a means for continuing our struggle against the state of Israel for our Arab unity. In reality, today, there is no difference between Jordanians, Palestinians, Syrians, and Lebanese only for political and tactical reasons. Do we speak today about the existence of a Palestinian people since Arab national interests demand that we posit the existence of a distinct Palestinian people in order to oppose Zionism? Point number four, what about those Palestinian refugees? This is the ancient biblical city of Shechem. I'm sorry, I, it's gotten a little fuzzy when I blew it up this big. But this was taken from my uh, iPhone uh, a couple of years ago from the top of Mount Gerizim. It was actually down here where the woman at the well from John chapter 4 would have taken place. But this area right here, you can see kind of roughly outlined is a refugee area. You might call it a ghetto. In 1948, when the war took place, Israel fought for its independence. The Arab nations over there kicked the Jews out. If you were a Jew and you had lived in Iraq, going all the way back to Babylon in 600 B.C., you were told you've got 24 hours to leave. Get out. Whatever you don't take with you, we're keeping. It belongs to us. 850,000 Jewish refugees were kicked out of Arab countries. They were welcomed with open arms into Israel. At the same time, the Arab League told Arabs in Israel, we are getting ready to invade. You all get out. After we're done destroying the Jews, you can come back and have it all. Well, guess what happened? Many of them did that. But the Arab League didn't win. Israel wound up winning. And those that were following instructions, leaving their homes, going to Jordan, going to Egypt, were placed in prisons, not by the Jews, but by the Jordanians and by the Egyptians. And they weren't allowed to assimilate into those other Arab countries. Now for some 70 years, they are still being pointed at and used as political pawns trying to villainize the nation of Israel. By the way, if you look back to the other direction, you see right there is Yasser Arafat's palace. So all the money that was coming from American taxpayer dollars going to help the PLO was not actually helping the Palestinian people, so to speak, at all. It was all going to enrich, just as in every communist totalitarian state, that top 1% that's the party has all the money, and the bottom 99% is all equally impoverished. Mahmoud Abbas, who was the head of the, of the uh, Fatah, said this, Admitting what I just stated to you in 1976, the Arab armies entered Palestine to protect the Palestinians from the Zionist tyranny. But instead, they abandoned them and forced them to immigrate and to leave their homeland and threw them, who? The Arabs threw them into prisons similar to the ghettos in which the Jews used to live. 
Now, this is most interesting. 2011, there was a poll done by the Council on Foreign Relations. CFR is not the good guys. The CFR is the globalists that are in control of much of our American government. But they did a poll, and they were surprised at the results. A thousand Arab families were interviewed about the possibility of a two-state system. These were Arab families that lived in East Jerusalem. And of those 1,000 families that were interviewed, 54% said that if they were given the choice, they would prefer to live in the democracy of the Israeli government rather than live in a Hamas-led Palestinian government. So as we come to a close, let's look at this. Today, we've looked at these facets quickly. Occupied territory? No. Legally, it's belonged to the Jews legally since 1922. Palestine, there's no such nation. It's all part of the Ottoman Empire for 600 years until the British mandate. Two-state system? Well, we know we've tried that twice. 1922, Transjordan was sectioned off. And then in 1948, the United Nations offered Resolution 181, which was rejected by the Arabs. Land for peace? Well, that's been offered many times. 1956, 1967, 1973, 1982, 2000, and 2005 is when we first started getting active because we were opposing President Bush giving away Gaza and ever, all that's happened ever since is they've used that as a place to launch rockets into the rest of Israel. Then Palestinian refugees, well, as we've just talked about, that is a political creation. It wasn't the Jews that imprisoned Palestinians. That was the Egyptians and the Jordanians that put them into ghettos and would not let them assimilate into the people, into the culture. Folks, we started right here 2,500 years ago. In the book of Ezekiel, God said, Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Phoenicia will no longer exist. Now, mind you, at the time, they were world powers. They were enemies of Israel. Have you looked at a map of the Middle East lately? Does Edom exist? Nope. Does the nation of Ammon exist? Nope. Does Phoenicia exist as a nation? Nope. What about uh, the Philistines? Well, they're in the White House right now. But officially as a nation, no. God said, Israel, you have disobeyed me. I ought to, I ought to just finish you off. That's what you deserve. But I made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And my reputation's online. You read Ezekiel. It's not because you all deserve this, but because... I've made the promise, and I'm going to keep my promise. You're going to be out of the land for a long time. In fact, the term wandering Jew came from these prophecies. And think about it. When you lose your nationality, what happens? Have you met an Edomite? No. Have you met an Ammonite? No. When you lose your nationality, you are assimilated into other countries and cultures. But after 1,800 years without a place to call their own home, the Jew has never lost his identity. I am absolutely convinced that God, that is why God established those unique kosher laws 
that Jews have attempted to keep to some extent. They have maintained their national identity for 1,800 years, and it hasn't been popular to do so. You know, wearing a gold star in Berlin in 1941 was not a good thing. That actually wound up being very, very bad for those that did. But just as all of the Old Testament prophets say, Israel is back in their land and spiritually dead. Yes, they are. Are there a lot of bad Jews in the world? Yes, there are. What about the Rothschild family? Bad people trying to control the world. I got news for you. There's a lot of Gentiles that are just as bad trying to rule the world. It's not just the Jews. Well, the Jews crucified Jesus. Well, no, actually, Jesus gave his life willingly for my sins. And yes, there were Jews that cried out, crucify him, crucify him, we'll have no king but Caesar. But there were also those um, 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 disciples that were Jews that were faithful. There were the 3,000 Jews at Pentecost. There were the 5,000 Jews a couple of days after. Not all of them are bad. And again, Ezekiel said, they will be back in the land as a mighty army, but there will be no ruach, no spirit within them. I think that's where we're at. I think Israel is there. I don't think any of this is an accident. I think it would be impossible for this to have happened accidentally. I think it's all according to God's plan. And you see Israel back in the land. There's still more Jews outside of the land than there are in the land. But we see it beginning. Are those in the land, do they follow Jesus? Nope. They are spiritually dead. And there is going to be a point in time. Again, some people have different opinions as to whether the rapture is at the beginning of the tribulation, at the middle of the tribulation, or what they call pre-wrath rapture, which is about three-fourths of the way through, or at the end of the tribulation. I got a, some dear friends, had several, they've preached in this pulpit before, that believe in a post-trib rapture, which doesn't make sense to me. I guess the, the wedding supper is going to be like an in-flight snack with just some peanuts and a bottle of water. And whoop, you're right back around. <clears throat> but anyway, that doesn't divide us as Christians. We all love Jesus. We're all born again by the blood of Christ. I happen to be convinced that God deals with a church mutually exclusive from Israel. And we will, as the bride of Christ, rule and reign with King Jesus when the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are fulfilled. And there is a thousand-year age of the Messiah where the seed of David literally rules in righteousness from the throne of David in Jerusalem. But leading up to that is seven years that Jeremiah says... And Jesus said in Matthew 24, is a time so horrible that the world's never seen anything like it. It culminates at Armageddon. At that point, all the nations of the world come together in one last anti-Semitic act that's demonic in nature, if you look at Revelation, trying to destroy the Jews and wipe them out entirely. And at that point in time, when it looks like they're going to succeed, they're going to cry out, and King Jesus is going to show up, not as the humble riding humble Savior, riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey, but this time leading his army, riding on a white charger, and there will be hell to pay. This next restoration will make them forget all about the Red Sea crossing. It will be so much greater in magnitude and nature. Now, Joel says that God is going to judge 
the world, one of the things is for trying to steal Israel's land. Zechariah says that in the last days, Jerusalem will be the one city in the world that the entire world is fighting to control and fighting over. Closing with this, the time Zechariah said that, that made absolutely no sense. Nehemiah had not returned and rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. It was still rubble after Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it. It would be like going to Hiroshima after the bomb had gone off and said, one day this is going to be the most important city on the planet. Well, if you say so, okay. Zechariah was told in the last days that all the world would be fighting over and intoxicated over control of Jerusalem. Didn't make any sense then. Really doesn't make a lot of political sense now. We didn't even recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel until Trump moved the embassy there. But what is the one city that if you want to build an apartment building in the eastern half of the city, that building code is discussed before the United Nations? Now, we've got some tough building laws in Edmond, but I promise you, nothing that we do here is discussed in the United Nations. Jerusalem is the one city over which the world is fighting over. I don't think any of this is an accident. I think it's all by design. Now, as I see things, again, I see the rapture coming next. Maybe not. Maybe it's going to be midway through the tribulation. But let me just say this. Whether by rupture or by rapture, one of these days, everybody in here within the next 30 years, I would say max, well, some of the young kids longer than that, but most of us within the next 30 years, we're going to come face to face with our Creator. We're either going to meet Him as Savior, or we're going to meet Him as Judge. When you see all of this literally being fulfilled, as the Scripture said it would happen 25 years ago, that should just reassure you that God is going to keep His every promise. So as we close today, ask one question. If the rapture came today, or say, oh, I don't think it's going to be a pre-trib rapture. Okay, let's say you had a heart attack today. Or you pulled out into traffic and you got hit a T-bone by a, a semi. Are you prepared? Do you know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? If not, that's the most important decision any of us have to make. Do you know for certain that Jesus is your Savior? Do you know for certain that heaven is your home?